this week on Dig Me Out. So that's our review of Wilco. Excuse me. That's our review of Trace. <laughs> oh. No. Tim and Jay review Trace by Sunvolt. Reality. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me, as always, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 253-253 as we wind down season five. How are you doing, Jay? How many How many we got this year? How many what? Episodes. How many are left? How many are left for the season? I'm going to yeah. say like only like Eight? five or six. Five or six. Okay. Yeah. I think we I think we wrap out at like 259 is our final episode, is our season in review episode. So we got to start doing our homework for that. Yeah. We have a lot of people to thank for this year. The thank you cards are going to be uh, quite tedious <laughs> that I have to address. There are a lot of people that uh, well, contributed to making this a very special year for us. We'll have less reviews to go to go through though, right? To pull... Uh, Poll favorites. Yeah, we might have to change our season and you know ending review episode to uh, not just include our favorite reviews and favorite you know albums or songs. We have to rec- you know our favorite interviews, our favorite roundtables, hmm. that kind of stuff. That sounds like a lot of work. It does sound like a lot of work. <laughs> we actually have to go back and re-listen to every episode to make sure that we. What's the most interesting episode we could do with the least amount of work? That's what we need to figure out. <laughs> this right here. I will spend four weeks doing that, and then the final week I'll spend prepping for the show. There you go. So, Jay, uh, I picked an album for this week, and I did yeah. so. Yeah. I did so. I feel like this is turning into a competition now. Well, no, there's a reason behind me picking this episode. Oh, I know there is. But that's the problem is that when I pick records, there's barely a reason. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I, I kind of, I'm curious to listen to this again. This will give me an excuse to listen to it. You're like out to actually try to find good records. Well, it was more that I, I was on Amazon.com, to be quite honest. And uh, I was, you know, you can create like your wish lists. Sure. So I use that as like my reference point for stuff I want to buy not necessarily that i want other people to buy for me but that i forget like what I, i'm interested <laughs> it's, it sounds stupid but it basically sure. gives me i can keep a running tally of like oh these are all the books i want to read sure. in the next year so i just keep at, you know i see something i just add it to the wish yeah. list and i can go back i do that so i was looking through records that had been reissued this year and Sunvolt's debut album trace showed as a reissue and I was like, oh my God, that's right. It came out in 1995. And then I looked and it was like, oh, it's not just a reissue, but if you buy the CD, there's a du- it's a double CD with demos of all the songs. And, um, you know, obviously it's been remastered and whatnot. And then I looked and Jay Farrar, the lead singer, was out doing a solo tour to support the re-release. So I thought, well, it came out in 95. Perfect. It's been 20 years be nice to uh, revisit this record. I haven't listened to it in, in quite a while. So let's do that. Let's, let's check do out, it. Let's check out some Sunvolt. Let's do some history before we get to it. History of the band. 
Sunvolt formed in 1994 after the uh, collapse, I guess you'd say, of the legendary alternative country rock band Uncle Tupelo, uh, who played their last show on May 1st of 1994, but the band was essentially broken up before that tour even started. Uh, Jay Farrar and Jeff Tweedy, later of Wilco, had personal issues going on between the two of them. And um, basically their manager asked them to go out on one more tour. He had lost a lot of money on the band that had not sold records. And it's like, if you go out and do this tour, we can make a couple dollars. We can kind of get back closer to even. So uh, they went out on the tour. It was a lot of the two of them yelling at each other (laughs) and uh, off stage. And uh, as soon as they got off tour, they broke up. Jeff Tweedy took the majority of the members of the band with him to Wilco. Uh, Jay Farrar hired uh, Dave Boquist and Jim Boquist. There were a couple of brothers who played with Joe Henry, I believe. And then he got the original drummer from Uncle Tupelo, Mike Hydorn, And they recorded what would be the debut album, uh, Trace. It was released in September 95. It was released after Wilco had released their debut record in March of 95. So there was a, a like, you know, Uncle Tupelo breaks up 94 a year later. The Wilco record comes out a couple months later after that. The Sunvolt record comes out. So there's definitely some comparisons going on between the two uh, albums at that time. The lead single, Drown, was a minor college and rock radio hit. It charted number 10 on the Billboard Mainstream Rock Tracks chart and number 25 on the Billboard Modern Rock chart. number 166 on the Billboard uh, 200 album chart. So that was released in 95. Two years later, they released Straightaways. That reached number 44 on the Billboard 200. A year later, Wide Swing Tremolo, which reached number 93. Then Jay uh, put Sunvolt to uh, rest for a little while. He put out a solo album, Sebastopol, in 2001. Then he did a soundtrack for a movie called The Slaughter Rule. came out in 2003. Put a second solo record later that year in 2003. Then there was a uh, Sunvolt retrospective came out, 1995 to 2000. That came out in 2005. He reunited the band that year and released Okuma and the Melody of Riot, which uh, reached number 89 on the Billboard chart. And then uh, this is an interesting one, Jay. So he stepped away from Sunvolt again to release an album called Gob Iron with a gentleman named Anders Parker. And Anders Parker should be familiar to us because Anders Parker played in a band called Space Needle, which we reviewed their album, The Moray Eels Eat the Space Needle, 
in episode 119 hmm. of this particular podcast. Seems like, uh, from memory, if memory serves, it seems like an odd pairing. No? Yep. Well, at, in the 2000s, from what I recall, Jay was working with a lot of different artists that you would not necessarily pair him with. Um, and he was getting a little more experimental with some of the uh, solo albums. So it's it probably seems odd now, but at the time, it, he he was kind of I think he had gotten sort of tired of the Su- Sunvolt format, so he was looking to stretch some of his uh, songwriting. Uh, in 2007, Sunvolt released "The Search," and in 2009, "American Central Dust." Then he did a collaboration album uh, later that year with Ben Gibbard of Death Cab for Cutie. The album was called One Fast Move or I'm Gone. It was uh, a soundtrack for a movie about Jack Kerouac. And then in 2013, the most recent Sunvolt album, Honky Tonk, came out. So that's the history of Sunvolt. Uh we actually reviewed an Uncle Tupelo record back in uh, season one. We reviewed Still Feel Gone. I think Neil Schmidt joined us for that particular episode, in fact. Really? When, when we did that, yeah. And I'm pretty sure I covered where all my history is with this particular band and Uncle Tupelo and Wilco. Pretty significant artists for me back in the college days at uh, Bowling Green. So Yes, for a while, Tim's nickname was Uncle Tim Cavolt. Uncle Tim Cavolt. Yes, it was. I, I don't think we can start a review of this record without disclosing that. Mm-mm. Uh, and in fact, when I started playing this record again, I immediately like went down to the basement and picked up my acoustic guitar and started playing the songs like I had just been learning them, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah. Like so, so much of this was just like, yep, yeah, picked up the guitar. These are this. This is basically one of the albums that taught me how to play guitar. So, cool. So let's talk about the record, mm. Trace. I also want to mention that uh, we ca- I cannot let this go. Uh, that when Jay and uh, our former lead singer Keith wanted to, um, I don't know how he would say it, get under my skin a little bit. <laughs> They would uh, repeat a line from one of the songs on this record, uh, mm. repeat it uh, over and over again. So, Jay, uh, are you causing it? <laughs> I don't think you did it right. I don't think so. Or just uh, causing it? <laughs> causing it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, since I brought this record to the table, Jay, tell me something that you liked about mm. Sunvolt's Trace. Uh, I like how the band plays together. Is that a polite way of saying you're tight? Your band's pretty tight? Like, mm. Actually, well, yes and no. It sounds like, uh, you know, very competent, obviously, but without being like too studio musician sounding. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some there's some vibe here. Right. I'm doing air quotes. So, yeah, it balances that line of, you know, really being professional and tight sounding, but also uh, it has a mood to it. There's a, at times, a looseness in the right way, especially around some of the guitar playing, you know, which gets a little bit rougher um, to help, you know, some pedal steel and, and, and violin and 
accordion, those kinds of instruments tend to sound, uh, they can get very sterile sounding Mm -hmm. and predictable. So the guitar layered in there, uh, especially with um, when he's playing electric and has some distortion or at least some overdrive, it helps rough it up a little bit. Some of the guitar leads and just the riffs in, in general, there's some pitch bending and things like that that come out of you know, more of a punk rock or grunge kind of aesthetic that I think combined with uh, the more traditional country, you know, instrumentation can make a pretty interesting mix. Um, So, you know, sonically, I think it's interesting. And also just from a performance, you know, recording standpoint, I think it sounds, you know, there's moments on here, I'm trying to find the track, but, you know, it reminded me of the band, you know, like, Mm -hmm guys you could tell just spent months i don't know i don't know what the process was for this record but i just got the same sense of you know being locked in a room and just working on this stuff and just you know really getting it refined and down and really playing off each other and you know so from that aspect it definitely works for me well what's interesting is that is that i think that jay would shed a lot of this stuff on his own because mm-hmm. the demos that were released with the reissue a lot of the songs are in the format you hear them they might be at a different tempo like they might have been a little slower or a little faster and the words might have changed here and there but for the most part a lot of these songs are the same as what they sounded like when he was playing them by himself on an acoustic guitar Mm -hmm. they just i think what the band did was just add so much of the dynamics like drown, for example, you know, it has that like uh, that st- the, the the drums and the and the bass are kind of playing this straight ahead beat, and he's doing these like jagged guitar punches, like bam, bam, bam. Um, that's not as quite as pronounced in his demo. Like mm, he's that's... sort of strumming through it, so the band brought that sort of right accent ability to add that accent, which I, I you know I can understand when you're playing acoustic guitar by yourself. I think he was actually playing like a dirty electric um on a four track or something like that you know it's hard it's not as easy to hear those accents when you're playing by yourself as opposed to when a drummer brings in you know where they're going to make the the kick in the snare and that's what i mean like that to me that that performance aspect makes Mm -hmm. makes this a um you know a repeated listen you know it, it goes beyond just the initial right you know, go through it one time or a couple times, appreciate the songwriting. It, it it gets to the level of, you know, where you can start to say, oh, well, that's really cool how they did that. And, and you know, it's got some dynamic and it just feels like a band. It feels like guys listening to, to each other and playing off each other and, you know, improving parts here and there based on what other people play, which is always a great thing, you know. Right. Uh, especially, I don't know, in 2016, I don't think we hear that enough, so. Or 15. Sorry. Got a year Jump ahead. ahead there. Yeah, I agree. I, I think the thing that in, in revisiting this record, I mean, I'm so familiar with it, I could, you know, guess the lyrics, even though I hadn't heard them in years, is uh, how I really appreciated the sequencing of the album. I love the fact that they bounce from, you know, Windfall, the opener, which is kind of deceptive. You think it's going to be this slow acoustic song, but it's actually got a pretty upbeat shuffle to it when it kicks in and then you've got live free which is a louder harder rock song and then you drop 
you know, the tempo down for Tear Stained Eye, which again has this sort of like mid-tempo shuffle and with an acoustic guitar. Then you got Route, which is a faster, louder rock song again, a little bit even more louder than Live Free. Ten Second News really brings it down. And then you get Drown. Really, it just does a good job of like throwing you off so that, you know, this could have easily been sequenced where you put a bunch of the rockers up front and then the whole best of the rest of the back end of the album could have dragged. We've heard that. <laughs> Yeah, I feel, like we, I feel like we've reviewed that record many yes. times, and I really feel like this album ends on a great note. Uh, the the last song "Mystifies Me" is actually a cover. Oh, of, it's uh, Ronnie Wood that. from the Stones. Okay, uh, when he so when he was in the Faces, Rod Stewart had been you know dipping into solo albums, so. Ronnie Wood put out his own solo album in 73 and this is the third track on there and I went and actually never listened to it until today and I went back uh, I went on to Spotify and found it and it's it's a bit different um I I just I'm guessing that when you mentioned the band that you're probably referencing uh, one of the songs would be like this song because mm-hmm. it has that like lazy yeah. kind of feel to it the original version is actually more based around organ and electric guitar so it even has more of like a 70s kind of the band feel. I like that song because so much of this album is so, I guess, dark lyrically that it ends on this moment of, I don't know, I want to say happiness, but at least there's it's not it's a moment of lightness that the, a lot of the record doesn't have. A lot of this record, and it was, it was prevalent in Jay's songwriting in Uncle Tupelo, is about you know just being crushed by the daily life of of someone in the lower middle class. Track two, "Live Free or Die," is kind of mocking the idea of not patriotism, but just this idea. Well, as long as you're living free in America, you're doing all right. Where he's, you know, a lot of this record is talking about people who live their lives separate from their loved ones because they have to drive trucks on the road or, or do whatever they work third shift or what have you. And he was always tuned into and, and growing up in a very rural, uh, economically sort of depressed area, very tuned into, you know, the people on the sort of the outskirts of normal society. I want to see your smile through a payphone. Season has changed. I want to see that shine or caustic without you when we're all passed over the rhythm of the river it will He also grew up, from what I read, in basically in a bookstore. I think one of his parents worked at or owned this like little bookstore in uh, whatever Bell. I think maybe it was Belleville, Illinois, where it was, but um, which is near, I think near St. Louis. I'm not sure. I have to check the geography on that. But basically, he's you know spent a lot of time reading, and I'm sure that that and and he, his appreciation for Woody Guthrie 
which she talked about a lot over the years, um, was a big deal in terms of songwriting and, and sort of the plight of the working man in, in a lot of his songwriting. So there's a lot of references to to that stuff. So when it actually ends on kind of, I, don't, I, I guess you'd say kind of a romantic song, yeah. um, it's a nice little change of pace at the end. But it sounds seamless with in terms of the instrumentation and yeah. how the rest of the record goes. It fits in for sure, but as I analyzed it, I, I definitely was thinking, hmm, I wonder if this is a cover. Just because it, um, I think the thing I really liked about it, yeah, I love the kind of the, I just listened to the Ron Wood version and too, and it, it's like even more behind the beat. And it does this dramatic, like, like there's these pauses and then the mm-hmm. vocal comes back in and it just was really cool, like playing with the rhythm like really pushing it to the point of where it's almost out of time and then it comes back snaps back in again mm-hmm. um which is fun to hear the thing that i think though it works really well for for him is the vo- the uh, for sunville is because the vocal melody i think puts him in a place that um I, I, you know, if they're getting into the, the the things I don't like about this band is he tends to get into this one way of singing everything, mm-hmm. one note kind of to, to the point where there's some sections of songs and songs where it just becomes a drone, whereas Mystifies Me, because of the way the phrasing is, and I think, um, I don't know if it's the key, the amount of lyrics there are, it just, it puts him in a different position. Sure vocally which i enjoy you can start to hear some rasp in his voice it you know and i just i uh, it, when i listen to it it's more like relaxed um from a vocal standpoint you know and, and almost i don't I want to say it's spoken but it's just a he's not uh pushing as much and i just i really enjoyed that it's a great way to end the record i mean it fits them it fits the record but i definitely could hear the songwriting subtle you know the difference in the songwriting between that song and the rest of them well, I think that Jay's choices for covers have always pushed him a little bit outside of his normal vocal tendencies. Um, there was a band called the Flame and Groovies that were around in the, I think, the 70s. And they had a song called Shake Some Action. And that was a live cover that I saw him do. And it's unlike most Sunvolt stuff. I mean, it's got this, like, sort of 70s pop rock garage kind of feel to it, which forces him to sing a little bit faster. Um, He also does a cover of this country song called Looking at the World Through a Windshield, which is like this truck driving song. But it's got these, like, you know, it sounds like uh, it's like not Convoy, but it has this, like, Johnny Cash meets kind of convoy kind of feel to the song again puts him outside of his normal vocal delivery and that is that's the knock I think on Jay and probably why that band was not as successful even though you know this record out the gate even though it came out after AM I remember being on we didn't have message boards in 1995 we had email list serves (laughs) and uh I remember the arguments with the Uncle Tupelo fans saying, you know, which which album was better because there was a you now camps were being 
developed. Who are you? Are you a Wilco fan or are you a Sunvolt fan? And that Wilco record came out first, and it sounded like what Jeff was doing on the last Uncle Tupelo record, which was these, you know, catchy three and a half, four minute long relationship songs, to put it simply. And um, the first Wilco record is nice, but the Sunvolt record sounded like Jay took what he did in Uncle Tupelo and actually added some more, I hate to say melody, but he did like, he actually made his songwriting a bit catchier in some ways. And I don't know if he felt pressure to do that, but like songs like Drown would not have fit on the previous Uncle Tupelo record. Like he was going for a much more, not complex, but you know, he was working with, um, uh, more traditional sounds, you know, bringing in a lot more fiddles and and lap steels and pedal steels and violins and stuff like that, and it, stuff like drown and route and live free, catching on. Those songs would not have been on the last Uncle Tupelo record, and I think that a lot of people then were like, "Oh well, clearly Sunvolt just kicked the Wilco's ass." It sounded like the Wilco stuff sounded like kind of trite compared to it. Hmm. But then Sunvolt never expanded on that. Right. They basically, the second record, which I really like straightaways, but it's essentially a retread of Trace. Whereas Wilco went out and made Being There, which is this huge double album where there's influences by, you know, the Stones and John Lennon, Johnny Cash. And you hear this huge sound coming out of the band that would then evolve into Summer Teeth and then into Yankee Hotel Foxtrots. And the band was just, you know, moving at a pretty quick rate yeah. in terms of its development. And then Wide Swing Tremolo came out, and that kind of sounded like what you expected from... There was some production differences because they brought in um, Dave Barbie from, I believe, Sugar to produce that record. So it was a little bit more abrasive in some parts and louder, but again, it still sounded like Sunvolt, and it was still Jay delivering the same sort of like Jay vocal thing that he does, which yeah. works fine. But the initial thoughts that Sunvolt had made the superior choices while on the first record is correct, but his limitations as a vocalist, you know, became yeah. apparent. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I was struck by the harmonies on this record. I don't remember there being harmonies in Sunvolt before. Is this unique to this record, or am I just had not noticed that before? Jay and Jeff sang harmony in Uncle Tupelo. What's interesting is that uh, when they did the last tour and they weren't talking to each other, Jay refused to sing harmony on any of Jeff's songs. Jesus. So there was some real animosity between the two. Uh, but that was part of the whole deal with them, is that you know, Jay has this deeper voice and Jeff had a little bit higher voice so that when they were singing harmony, it would sound really good together. But yeah, the, the, the harmonies in Sunvolt, there is actually, I thought that there were more, but there's not as many as I remembered. But uh, it's, um, in terms of the two brothers that play on the record, Jim and Dave Boquist, Dave Boquist is a multi-instrumentalist. He plays like banjo, pedal steel, lap steel, electric guitar, everything you can think of. And then Jim, the bass player, is actually the backup vocalist in the band. So I think it's Jim doing the vocal, the, the harmonies on the record. Um, and they're pretty, I mean, I think they picked the right spots to do them. 
Yeah, like they, they could have killed it with harmonies on this record. No, but it makes the um, it makes up for some of the limitations in his vocal sure. approach. When you when you bring the harmony in, it doesn't take much. I mean, obviously, you know, you, not everybody has to be Freddie Mercury. That's fine. No, it's just you want you want to find the right mix of other elements to use so that you know when you can when you want to deliver different things, you can you can figure out a way to do it in different emotions and right. I think sometimes he, even within this record, you start to hear a little bit more, um, I don't know, like, he gets morose at times, you know, mm-hmm. with oh, yeah. his vocal approach. You're just like, oof, you know, here we go again. Even in some of the songs where they start up, up tempo, see uh, Catching On, for example, um, comes in with a really good guitar hook. And then it, when the vocal comes in, it goes down to this halftime shift and he kind of delivers what you would expect in the verse. You know, there's no urgency. There's no, mm-hmm. you know, you're back to sort of blueprint of the way he sings. So when that harmony can come in, at least gives him some variety to like, okay, we're picking it up here. Or, you know, there's a different shade to what goes on, which is, a, it can be really important to some of these songs. Basically, he has two. I mean, he has like sort of the the J voice that you hear in the up tempo stuff, and then he just you know on songs like Too Early or Out of the Picture, it's just he just sings slower and you know with more space, and that's the basically the approach that he takes. Like there's there's never a lot of um, variation on that. Yeah, and uh, you know I. I in terms of him being a vocalist, he's probably a better songwriter overall than a vocalist mm-hmm. delivering the songs, but that's what he's got to work with. So, But I think on certain songs, his voice is absolutely perfect. Like Windfall, the opening song, like his vocal is perfect for that song. I feel like for a song like Drown, which, you know, after all these years, I don't see it as like one of the best songs on the record, even though it was a single like his inability to do much with his vocal is what sort of makes that chorus the repetitiveness of that chorus not annoying but just like you kind of get tired of it after a listen or two. Yeah, I agree. Uh I really like Windfall. I think that finds him in a good place and I can hear the kind of folk music, you know, would you say uh, Pete Seeger or Mhm. Um, that sort of thing in there, yep. um, which I love. I think he does that really, really well. I love the structure of that song too. That they introduce yeah. the bridge right after the first chorus. Yeah, it, it works. It's one of the better songs on the record for me. May the wind take your troubles away. May the wind take your troubles away. Both feet on the floor, two hands on the wheel. May the wind take your troubles. 
There's a uh, an, a reference to AM on there. Is there any chance that that's a Wilco reference? I don't think so because I feel like this those two records were written around exactly the same time. Like they basically broke the band up and then went off and started recording their records. It just took a little longer for Jace to come out. But him referencing switching over to AM, looking for a truer sound. I was like, what? A track one? I was like, right. I'm sure at the time it was analyzed as such, but I think that's just Jay like playing with imagery and using, he has a lot of like old timey references and a lot of historical references. And, you know, uh, you might not even catch it, but in um, 10 second news, he references uh, there's a beach there known for cancer is one of the lyrics. And that's actually a reference to there was a a beach. So Times Beach, Missouri, there was uh, like toxic waste buried there. Yeesh. And um, where is this at? Missouri. Okay. It's called Times Beach. It was a resort area for the in the from like the 20s to the 70s. And they started running low on money. So they started burying, I think they started burying waste. (laughs) And in 19, in the early 80s, the EPA paid them a visit and basically said, "Uh, you need to move the town. (laughs) So 2,000 people had to be moved out of this small town. Wow. And they found like 265,000 tons of contaminated soil and debris. And it's basically a ghost town. Uh, and it runs along Route 66, the famous mm-hmm. route that runs through. Um, Radiator Springs. Yeah, Radiator Springs uh, is made famous <laughs> in the movie, in the documentary known as Cars. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, by the way, I don't want to go off on too far of a tangent here. Can you it, believe that, that there was a time when tar- cars could talk? Yeah, it was, you know, Herbie. and it's wild. Uh, there is a book uh, by a, a writer who used to write for uh, Ain't It Cool News. His name is Vern. He just goes by the name Vern, and he writes movie reviews. Mm-hmm. One of the books is called like Yippie Kaye Moviegoer. It's it's basically a collection of his movie reviews. One of them is about cars, and the whole movie review is just a series of questions about the world of cars. And it is absolutely one of the funniest album reviews you will ever read. It's like, where, how do they, how are these cars born? <laughs> oh, like, who decides what car uh, is, does what job? Do these right. cars have parents? Do, I, do they die? Are they trapped? Is, is an ambulance have to be an ambulance or can he be <laughs> something else? Like, what sort of caste system is involved here? Like, and if you're an oil tanker... And it just it goes on and on throughout. Like, what is reproduction? <laughs> That's good. It's fast. Do, it is an absolutely insane. fascinating. You can do that for almost any uh, Pixar movie. Yeah. Well, he takes it to the you know, do it for Toy Story. Yeah. He takes it to the nth degree. So anyway, backtracking from Cars to Times Beach to the album. There's a lot of ref- There's a lot of small. And sometimes not necessarily obvious references that he places in his songs. And I think that the AM one is simply just a cultural one. I don't think it's a knock on or an attempt to knock on Wilco's debut album. So, gotcha. Yeah. 
You say so. That's what I'm saying. So, but it's in a lot of ways, it's hard for me to like. I know you probably have the same thing with certain albums that you're just so invested in. Right. Yeah, we've reviewed some here. I'm just so. Right. I had spent so much time with it. It's just difficult to see it any other way. I think going back now, I can I can definitely see, you know, I, I was probably less critical of it then. And my, you know, my main criticism is probably with you, w- agreeing with you that his vocal is probably uh, the biggest limitation on the record. Because I think, you know, production wise, it sounds good. Everything's everything's placed in like exactly the right spots. Mm-hmm. Um the sounds they use they do a good job of like you know this song they use a little bit of pedal steel and then the next song they use a little bit of uh lap steel or violin or organ or something like there's always just like a touch of something where it doesn't Mm -hmm. become overwhelming to any of the songs Mm -hmm. also the the acoustic guitars on this record sound really good yeah like they did a great job of recording them because you could hear like when he tunes he would tune um to like an open d i know from learning the songs or or to a drop d and you really get that like darkness in a lot of the acoustic guitar playing mm-hmm. it was cool to go back and, and hear that because so many times acoustic guitars just sound like nothing you just sound like you're hitting a washboard or something on a hee-haw yeah. so we should no. talk about our overall ratings on this record jay we're the album Better EP, decent single. Where you at? I have uh, highlighted here of what love and tracks. Mm-hmm. I have five. Mm. I definitely am in a place in my life where I appreciate this record more now than I probably did or could have at any time near when it came out. Jay, this um, this record was made for driving the back roads of Texas. I know, I know. <laughs> Trust me, I've been uh listening to it doing that and uh it fits well and i've been finding myself listening to more like alternative country americana stuff mm-hmm. so it's sort of hit me in a spot where i think i can appreciate it about as much as i'm ever going to that said i still think i'm at an ep i think the stuff on here that's strong is very strong i just think that the there's probably half of the record where it just isn't go far enough. And, and and some of that is, I think at the time, this is what I'm going to contradict what I just said. I mean, they kind of pioneered the sound, right? I mean, there wasn't a lot of people doing um, any kind of modern, like authentic take on country music that wasn't like Nashville oriented. Right. Know. There were, there were alternative country artists. And we'll- right cover this in a round table in a future year that existed before uncle Tupelo, but I don't think that they had transitioned into being an, an impactful on college radio, the way yeah. that uncle Tupelo was and the way that, um, Wilco and Sunvolt would be. And I don't think anybody evolved the way that Wilco has. Um, yeah. And out I think of, they've out of that whole genre. I, th- I, I just think that's opened up an even larger you know a genre now that exists right what i just said so i just feel like listening to this now the time but i was just listening to it now i think there's artists that probably do it better or have more range Mm -hmm. um so that's kind of what i'm comparing it against 
the good news is that it holds up very well. You know, I mean, it sounds like it could have just come out this year. Um, it doesn't sound dated in any in any way. It's just some of it is a little too morose and not quite rich enough for, for my taste. So I'm probably at an EP, to be fair. That's fair. I am at a full album, obviously. I think there are a couple of songs that show some warts to me and, and don't work as well. Um, it's actually some of the more up-tempo stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it wasn't exclusive on, you know, up-tempo or down. The stuff I have is a total mix of yeah. both. So. Uh, and I definitely feel like in analyzing it critically... Uh, the previously mentioned vocal imitations are probably the thing that I see now is what held them back from be- from crossing over into a you know in the same way that like I-, I think what makes Ryan Adams an interesting artist is probably is the fact that he's able to actually deliver the lines mm. in a way that Jay Farrar never could even though I don't necessarily think that outside of maybe a song or two, Jay Ryan Adams can deliver the songwriting the way that Jay Farrar could mm-hmm. in terms of depth or, mm-hmm. um, you know, interesting subject matter. Mm-hmm. But Ryan Adams is just a better singer. So that's, yeah. you know. It really does come down to that um, more times than not. Mm-hmm. Anytime you're put even one toe into the pop music world, which all of the stuff we review is in some way. It usually comes down to the vocal. I was surprised that they even managed to score multiple, like, charting albums. Like, all three albums released in the 90s charted. Yeah. And and the one that came out after this came, charted even better than this one. I remember it being, I mean, pretty big. But just like you said, it just... I think in in hindsight, the way that Wilco just kind of exploded and just kept building and building and building yeah. that that banded to new things and new things. It just got this band just got overshadowed so immensely that in hindsight, you kind of forget how big they were, at least in the you know sort of alternative rock college rock scene. Yeah, and I think there was an evolution going on in alternative country, which we can cover at a, a future date, but. Jayhawks went through an evolution when they put the Sound of Lies album. You know, there were Whiskey Town comes around in 95, 96 with their first record. Yeah. So, you know, there were there were some changes going on and Wilco changed with it and you know, Sunvolt didn't for better or worse depending on you know if you like the sound or not. So, sure. Uh so that's our review of Wilco, excuse me. That's our review of Trace (laughs) by Sunvolt. Uh, Yikes. If you want to chime in on this, feel free to go ahead. I'm sure people have some opinions. But uh, feel free to leave some positive feedback uh, over at iTunes. And, of course, if you have an album you'd like us to review, head on over to our Request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. For Jay, I'm Tim. We're out. We'll be back next week with another episode. Dig me out. Bones on display. Black Hawk never had a say. Just taken out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com. 
where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. We're